Hello, everybody, and welcome to Friend Diagram. This is the podcast where two friends catch up and find common ground between their favorite media. I'm Remy. I'm Kat. And today we'll be comparing notes on Slow Horses and The Exorcist. Warning, spoilers ahead. But first, (laughs) we have to do an update because I binge-watched Our Flag Means Death since our last recording. Um, I watched the first episode um, last Thursday, right after we finished recording, and then... Mm -hmm. Um, on Saturday, I didn't leave my bed and (laughs) I watched that show the whole day and only got up to like take bio breaks and get more mimosas. So, um, it was a really good day. Um, so yeah, I binged it in one go. I've started rewatching it already. Um, my partner and I are on episode five now and Mm, a good one. Another thing is that I also impulse bought a Blackbeard flag to hang in my house. It has not arrived mm-hmm. yet. Um, <laughs> I'm very that excited is, about it. That's an indicator that you enjoyed the series, yes? Yes, so much. I'm obsessed. <laughs> you I haven't, haven't told us yet. About it. Oh my god, yes. These are all You evidence. just told us you watched it. I just wanted you guys to put the pieces together. Um, mm-hmm. It's fantastic. I can't stop talking about it. I've been talking to my partner about it almost nonstop. And he's like, let's just watch it. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. yeah, but we've got to talk about it also when we're not watching it constantly. (laughs) Um, So I loved it. How much do you think about it? All the time. (laughs) During the day. All Uh, the the time, right? I couldn't focus on work. And I was just watching compilations of the best moments. That's like... Exactly. The YouTube algorithm is so different than it was two weeks ago because it was non-existent two weeks oh, ago. Oh, yeah. It was just like me watching Travis McElroy playing Stardew. Mm-hmm. Um, and now it's like you like this show and this show only. <laughs> this is mm-hmm. the only thing you like. Mm-hmm. The other day I was um, searching for uh, like interviews about the making of the exorcist and stuff like that while i was like researching the pod and it was mm-hmm. literally giving me interviews with taika waititi and i was like excuse I, me why you have you no know idea how many of those i've watched <laughs> i watched so many i just went down the rabbit hole oh yeah big time yeah so um 10 out of 10 probably the best show i've ever watched like i'm obsessed yeah. with this show mm-hmm. um so yeah, I watched a lot of compilations, and um, Remy also was kind enough to recommend a couple of video essays that are really fantastic. Um, I watched Our Flag Means Death, Analyzing the Gay Pirate Show, which is a video by the creator Rowan Ellis, which was a fantastic video. Um, it kind of breaks down all of the elements of the plot, so lots of spoilers in that video, but mm-hmm. um, just generally a really fantastic kind of breakdown of the themes of the show and a really great analysis. I mean, she just offers m- much more expert commentary on the value of representation in the show, so if you're looking for that type of commentary from someone who's in that LGBTQ plus community, like that's a great resource. Yes. And then 
Another really great video was The Brilliance of Our Flag Means Death, which is a video by the content creator James Summerton. And I especially liked this video. I think it spoke very clearly about the reception of Our Flag Means Death by the queer community. It also had a lot less in the way of spoilers. I felt like I could share that mm. with most people because it mostly talked about framing the show's context in terms of representation without going too far into plot details, which I really liked. And I thought he did a very, very good job. Do you have anything to add? Uh, no, I just really loved his commentary as well. I thought yeah. that um, video was excellent. Yeah. I like his humor as well. Yes. Um, I really liked, I'm paraphrasing here, but he said... Spoiler alert, people don't care if a piece of media is queer, they care if it's good. And yes. I really loved that. I think, th and then he went, <laughs> Disney. Um, and I thought that yes. was so good. And I was like, yes, like this is so important for people to realize. <clears throat> Representation is so important. And by representing a certain group, it doesn't exclude a whole other facet of your audience, right? And I thought that that was just really well stated by him. Um, yeah, I loved that. Yeah, it's so good. And you know I'm always out for Disney blood. Like, <laughs> <laughs> And then um, another article that actually my partner shared with me before he had watched the show um, is an Atlantic article written by Emma Serapo, and it specifically focuses on um, how problematic queer baiting has been in the past and how Our Flag Means Death deals with that and avoids that. It's a really great article. It's very short, um, but I think it does a really great job of explaining the the history of queer baiting and why audiences were so surprised by Our Flag Means Death when mm -hmm. it did not follow the same pattern that people had been exposed to in the past. And I thought right. it was just a really good article. I'm so glad you watched it. Yeah. So those are some really great resources if you want to dive more into kind of audience responses to the show um, and also a deep dive into the themes of the show and yeah so we i guess i should have mentioned this at the beginning our flag means death is the show that we talked about last week um, right that was my that piece. was what yeah that was what remy brought to the table um and we discussed some thematic comparisons between this and watchmen and i did want to bring up one more that i thought of while i was watching um the show because um, I don't think we touched on this, and correct me if I'm wrong, but we talked about the piece of silk that Blackbeard mm. carries with him, and yeah. it is interpreted very differently by different people. Um, right. People have speculated that it reminds him of his childhood, where um, his mother was working for a richer family, and he has this really... Um, heartbreaking conversation with her about why can't we have nice things and she says we're just not those people mm -hmm. and so for a lot of people 
the silk that is in that scene and that he is clearly taken with him um, represents this desire, this childhood desire for a better, more, a finer life. Um, and this is something that he sees in Steed, clearly. And that's one comparison that has been drawn. And one point that I mentioned in our last episode was that there's a character in Watchmen named Dr. Manhattan, and he has a very clear tie um, through a person to his humanity. And when that person leaves him, um, he kind of loses his humanity. He loses everything that's connecting him to Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a major spoiler for the end of the show, but there's a very um, specific moment when Steed does not show up for Blackbeard and for Ed. <laughs> Steed does not show up for Ed. And it's uh, a very sad moment. And so sad. Um, I, in a way, I understand why Steed does what he does, but in a way I don't. But there's this moment when... Uh, Ed is clearly dealing with this breakup. He gets very sad. He writes a song with Lucius. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, there's this iconic moment where he lets go of the silk that he's been holding and looking at. And he lets go of this hope for finer things and this hope that he saw in Steed. And he makes this personality shift into what you would more expect of Blackbeard. He throws Lucius overboard. He um, cuts off Izzy's toe and makes him eat it. (laughs) Which was wild. Yes. Um, It was so good. I mean, it it felt rewarding to me. And Izzy's so happy about it. It was a consensual toe cutting off. Um, (laughs) Izzy was was very very into it. (laughs) God, I lost my dream. But, But for me... The letting go of that silk was letting go of that tie that he had to steed, that tie that he had to his more innocent nature, his um, his non-brutal nature. He was kind of letting go of Ed and truly embracing that Blackbeard persona. Mm-hmm. And while it's not the same character traits that are manifesting between Dr. Manhattan and Ed on his transition to Blackbeard, I think that like loss of ties to humanity and goodness were something that really stuck out to me between the two yeah fucking heartbreaking they better renew it i'm gonna have they don't i'm gonna throw hands holy shit i don't even know what avenues i will express myself through but i will find them and hbo will fucking hear from me oh man they have to renew it like i've been reading articles like on Hollywood Insider or whatever the fuck. Yeah. About why, how everyone's puzzled that they haven't announced the renewal of season two. And it sounds like it's just like inside baseball acquisitions bullshit in terms of like deals of who's buying what company and mm-hmm. things that are unrelated to the performance and success of the show because it's undeniable the show has been very successful. Is there anything? So when I covered the show last week, I. 
definitely left out certain parts. Like, even though we do, like, our spoiler yeah. warnings and stuff, I do leave out things when I think you will actually watch yes. it. Because <laughs> I want to leave some mystery for you. Is there anything I didn't cover that you want to talk about now that you've seen it? Oh, my God. I love Reese Darby. I love the on-screen chemistry. Okay, I will say that my favorite character in all of this is Lucius. Um, Mm -hmm. He was such an icon throughout (laughs) the whole, like, I've watched so many compilations of just that man. Yes, he's a big favorite. Oh my god, so good. It's so good. I honestly felt like that was the the top tier comedic performance for me. I did love um not Stephen Fry. That's not right. <laughs> close. Close. Joel, Joel Fry, Fry as Frenchie. Yeah. I had a 50/50 shot of getting that right cuz <laughs> the name Stephen and Joel were in my mind and I was like Stephen Stephen Fry sounds too familiar. Mm-hmm. Um I love when they go to the Republic of Pirates. <laughs> and he goes, please, join me. And he's so scared. But the way he says please in that moment, just goes. it just goes on a loop in my head where mm-hmm. I just go, please. <laughs> I think about it all the time. The dialogue um, is so... Buy Incredible. my booty. <laughs> <laughs> Man for sale. I think about Leslie Jones saying, "So good." That was, oh, what does she say? She says, my nose. "She's talking with." <laughs> that's a good one. She's talking with Olu about Jim's behavior, mm-hmm. and um, Oluwande says he thinks that Jim murdering Jackie's husband was pretty gauche. Yeah. And <laughs> Leslie Jones is like, yeah, that was fucking pretty gauche. <laughs> and I think about that all the time. Oh, man. I've been thinking a lot about Izzy Hands, though. <laughs> oh, my God. His voice is iconic, but he pisses me off yeah. so much. I hate that man. Here's the thing. I find him to be a very compelling opponent. I hate Calico Jack more. Yes. Because I don't... I don't have any respect for his motivations. Mm-hmm. I do empathize with Izzy Hands, though, because everything yeah. he does is out of love for Ed. And I, I, totally I can't agree. be mad at that. <laughs> so it's like, while he, while I disagree with his methods and what he wants from Ed and how he wants Ed to be, mm-hmm. his motivation is one I can understand. Totally. And I think... It's it's really interesting to compare and contrast Steed and Izzy because mm-hmm. Izzy wants what's best for Blackbeard right. and Steed wants what's best for Ed. And mm-hmm. those two things are not compatible. The other thing that I wanted to talk about with Lucius, mm-hmm. his relationship counseling for that relationship is everything to me (laughs) when he pulls ed aside on the treasure hunt and is like that strange little man likes you a lot Mm -hmm. and you like him Mm -hmm. and then he goes you can stab me in the face now i just love it welcome to our uh fan (laughs) podcast for our flag means death death. Uh, we've taken a little bit of a shift 
And this is this is what who we are now. Yeah, sorry. When you find something that brings you pure joy, you really <laughs> gotta just share it with the world. You gotta grab onto that joy. <laughs> I felt like I took ecstasy that Saturday. I know, dude. Like you said, it's, it's like straight hard up drugs, drugs, but good. And I thought you were kidding. And then I watched it, and I was like, it's hard drugs, but good. Yeah, it literally is. I love all no. of it. <laughs> I, I know the part I don't like. How is it so rewatchable, too? Like, it just gets better. It just gets better. I know everything that will happen, and it's so good every time. Yeah. Anyways, what a fucking show. Everyone should go watch (sighs) it. If you've made it this far, you've got to go get HBO, binge it. You can binge it in one day. It's like 10 Mm -hmm. hours of media. You can do this on the free trial, guys. Yes. Get the HBO free trial and just binge it and then binge it again and just get mm-hmm. all of your serotonin for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think we could just talk about this for like two hours. I know. I can see on your face that you're not ready. <laughs> you're not ready to be done. No, but I accept that it's time to move on. But you Ugh. and I can talk about it on our own time. <laughs> all the time. <laughs> the witch and his cat. Oh my god. Joel Fry as the witch. Incredible. He's obsessed with witches, first of all. Did you notice that? Of course he was a witch during the fuckery. We sound like lunatics right now. You're a lunatic and I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, um, Alright, so we're about... Well, I started my recording Ooh. early, but we're about 50 minutes into this recording. We're into so, this. Yeah. Um, hey, man, this is us. This is our show. We'll talk about what we want to yeah, fucking talk I about, mean, okay? We'll do a rewatch, maybe, of our, like, our favorite media. Maybe a year-end episode. We can I do, mean, like, you know re-watch. it's going to be on our year-end list. Fuck yeah, of course. I mean, if there's a season two, obviously we'll have to re- re- revisit that, of course. Holy shit, that's going to be like the event of the year. Ideally Um, next year. Yeah. Whew. So good. Um, So, you are talking about slow horses. Yeah, starting us off. Horses. You're just talking about horses. horses. Just horses, the animal. What's your favorite (laughs) horse? A favorite type of horse? I don't know. Or just... A singular it horse. could be like a type of horse or sea biscuit. I don't know. <laughs> oh God, uh, it, it's pretty. Oh, it's a pretty open my favorite horse. Question. No, I have an answer. Roach from The Witcher, the oh. Netflix series. Holy co- oh. fuck! I've never seen a horse with so much charisma. I love Roach. <laughs> I haven't seen the Netflix Witcher. I don't know how I haven't because I've played the game twice. Oh, God, you and should watch like it. And it's, like, a 60-hour at least game, so I've, like, logged so much time in that game. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, Roach is great. I have not finished it. I recommend you watch it, though. Yeah? Um, I think you'd like it. I have mixed feelings about Henry Cavill. And really? I think that's just because I don't fucking like DC movies. Hmm. Well, I don't have that history with him. I don't remember having many previous connotations about him other than that one scene from 
one of the more recent Mission Impossible movies where he mm. fights Tom Cruise in a bathroom. And I was like, wow, this is great. Um, but I think he's great in The Witcher. I really okay. like his character. It's cool. the it's a character trope you and I both really enjoy of like a cranky a very, man. A very cranky, taciturn man. I a, do a few love words. Geralt. Yeah. But he clearly loves his horse, Roach. So you know there's just tenderness right under the surface. <laughs> um, I don't like horses. I think they're super scary. They're very beautiful from afar. Every time I mm-hmm. drive past a horse, I go, horse? Um, verbally. <laughs> <laughs> but up close and personal, they do scare me. Yeah. I like them. But... The show Slow Horses <laughs> has nothing to do with horses. So let's just get that out of the way. <laughs> um, um, so, context. I'm talking about a new series on Apple TV+. Plus. This is... So yeah, I'm talking about the series Slow Horses, which is based on the novel Slow Horses. I'm not talking about that novel or the series of novels by Mick Herron. I'm going to specifically be talking about the Apple TV Plus series, um, specifically even more season one, because that's all that is available at this time in May of 2022. So I'm going to be talking about the Apple show Slow Horses, directed by uh, James Haynes and Hawes. Sorry, James Hawes. I can't read my own writing. Um, and this is a series that debuted on April 1st of this year, and I started watching it right away because I watched the trailer, as I do, (laughs) and I was interested in it, and this is a thriller spy drama series, and it's about... Uh, British spy, specifically uh, MI5 agents. And what's interesting about this show is that it's about a group of MI5 agents that have been disgraced in some way with the agency. Does this have historical context that I need to be aware of? Is it like during a specific time period that's like relevant, like World War II or something? No. Um, Good question. I was going to, I planned on clarifying that. The book came out in 2010. Mm -hmm. And so this period of time we're talking about is post, post 7-7 bombings in London. That was in 2005, but definitely pre-Brexit. So sometime between, sometime around 2010, I'm assuming is what this was meant to be. Okay. When and I think spies, I always think, like, World War II. No, I know exactly what yeah. you mean, which is why I, I planned on specifying. But yes, this is modern-day spies in London, mm-hmm. and we're specifically talking about... We're following this group of MI5 agents that are called Slow Horses. That's mm-hmm. the uh, internal slang term that people use to describe these agents that have either they've basically ruined their career within the agency one way or another Mm -hmm. whether they 
botched some assignment or had a problem with drugs or did something like left um, a, a sensitive document on a train. It could be any variety of things, but each of these people has been banished to this satellite location that's very undesirable that no one wants to work at. So each of these people in MI5 has been essentially banished to this satellite location called Slough House. And this is like the satellite office that you don't want to work at. It's not in the main MI5 offices at Regent's Park anymore. And it's really embarrassing and shameful for you to be banished there. And all of these people, they, they're called slow horses because they work at Slough House. It's, that's it. That's the reason why. And they each are there for a different reason. And it's basically really miserable. And the people that work at Slough House, they kind of fall into a few different camps once they get sent there. There's people that find it so miserable and degrading to be sort of knocked down to basically clerical work and no longer have actual operations to do anymore, that they quit after a couple months and just leave the service completely. Or you have people that realize they will never get back to Regent's Park and they just have to basically run out the clock to re retirement and they're resigned to being stuck in Slough House. And then the third group of people is people that still have hope that they can redeem themselves and get back in the good graces of MI5 and become like real agents again. Like, is that stratified based on skill or is that, mm -hmm. or are they all at the same basic starting level and some people have hope, some people don't have hope? Does that make sense? Yes. Um, it's complicated because there are different, definitely people of different skill levels there. Mm -hmm. Like some people have, are just hopeless and will absolutely never get out mm -hmm. of Slough House. Um, and there are people that do have talent and could potentially get out of Slough House. However, the key complication is that no one has ever made it out of Slough House. Okay. So even to have that aspiration is very optimistic. So in terms of the cold hard facts, no one has hope of doing so. But there are there is still like stratification of people that are at least striving to do that versus yeah. people that aren't trying to do anything whatsoever. Cool. And there's also a variety of past experiences. Like some people are there and are happy to be there because they've seen so much shit that they don't want to go back to being a full agent. So there's a lot of different dynamics of why people are there and mm -hmm. whether they want to remain there or not. And that sort of illustrates uh, basically why I like this show, which is uncharacteristic for me because I normally don't gravitate toward spy-related content. Yeah, same. Um, and normally I think that's the case because a lot of 
uh, media in that genre can rest on very one-dimensional characters. So obviously, like, James Bond is probably the most Mm -hmm. famous spy franchise, and I'm really not a fan of that. Um, And I think one of the major reasons is because James Bond himself is such a empty vessel of a character. That's why fucking, like, six different people have been James Bond, because he's just a guy that, you know, shoots guns and drinks martinis and talks to sexy women and that's like the whole character and he always wins he always is suave and skillful and there's no stakes there's no backstory there's Mm -hmm. almost no motivation it's very dry and uninteresting and i will say that the more recent films in the james Bond franchise have tried to course correct that uh, Mm. like No Time to Die I think definitely tried to undo a lot of those criticisms and it was a valiant effort but as a whole in terms of that franchise I think it's been pretty emblematic of why I'm not normally interested in spycraft material because it's almost always plot driven and frequently um not character driven mm-hmm. and slow horses is the exact opposite i mean there is plot inherently in any media there is plot but like thinking of working at it, basically a pre-retirement home for spies like, <laughs> it doesn't seem like there's much to do therefore all Correct. the plot does have to be character driven because it's mostly about the people right like they are specifically given very low stakes work to do because they're not trusted to do anything important anymore and this whole season it's six episodes and it takes place over the course of like 72 hours max it's somewhere between 48 and 72 hours so you're just getting like a few days of insight into these people's lives who are used to like just you know, sorting through logs of stuff that Mm -hmm. doesn't seem important for anything anymore. And there is an overall case that everyone in Slough House and the big Mm -hmm. official Regents Park um, MI5 office is focused on. There's like this big kidnapping case that everyone is concerned with, but I mean, Slough House is not a part of it because that's like an actual important priority Mm -hmm. to be working on. So that's the main driving source of the plot is that kidnapping case that's on a timer because um, the person that's been kidnapped is going to be executed in 48 hours. So Mm -hmm. that's, you know, that's where the time crunch comes from. But everything that unfolds and the way it unfolds and the interactions between all of the characters, all of that has to do with who these these people are and what baggage they're working with and what their different motivations are and how those intersect and how they play the game based on all of those character-driven aspects. So Mm. I chose this show not just because I really like it and really enjoyed it and 
uh, finally finished watching it this past week, but I just wanted to highlight why I think it's uh, an excellent example of uh, what can be done with character-driven tradecraft media. I think a lot of people could take, you know, um, great lessons from this show. I think it was highly successful in making spies interesting to people like me. Yeah. And it's interesting because there's such a wide range of failures being (laughs) represented in Slough House. Mm -hmm. Um, So the two kind of main characters of the season are this one guy, uh, River Cartwright is his name. He is basically a brand new MI5 agent who botched one of his assessments and that's what got him kicked down to Slough House and his main counterpart is the guy that's in charge of Slough House the he's in charge of the entire office that entire satellite mm-hmm. office Jackson Lamb is his name he's played by Gary Oldman oh. um you'd know him as Sirius Black I believe <laughs> and yeah they're great leads because Gary Oldman's character Jackson Lamb he's by design just this miserable gross rude surly just unapologetically awful person Mm. and does everything he can to make everyone in Slough House miserable basically (laughs) and but has a very rich backstory within MI5, like had a very active career before he started Slough House. Mm-hmm. So you have like very deep history with him in terms of his uh, his background as a, as a spy. Mm-hmm. And then in contrast, you have River Cartwright, who's played by Jack Loden, and he's, you know, uh, a young agent who had this one fiasco and wound up in Slough House and cannot stand that he's there. Like, he's the most Mm -hmm. hopeful person that's trying to leave. Like, he hates being there and not having anything important to do. He finds it boring and demoralizing and... All he wants to do is get out of there so he can make a difference and do something important and actually Mm -hmm. try to do work that will help people. So he's the the most motivated person to try to leave. Mm -hmm. And basically, you see how they sort of get, all of the people in Slough House get sucked into this wider kidnapping plot. Um... And I won't go into, like, all of those plot details, but in the beginning, you see how isolated everyone is because they're so miserable and distrusting of one another Mm -hmm. and unhappy to be there. But over the course of the season, people start, you know, pulling together and working together, and despite each of them having some fundamental flaw that... (laughs) got them there in the first place as a team they can make up for 
those, um, those flaws. And it's really interesting to see different combinations of people working together and Mm -hmm. making progress. And I thought they did, uh, some really cool things with different combinations of characters that you might have thought were unlikely at the beginning of the season, but by mm-hmm. the end of the season, you're like, I love this pairing. I want to see <laughs> them work together all the time. And it's it's great because there's so many different contrasts in different people's strengths, whether it's because they have um, a lot of skill with sort of analog tradecraft like from back in the day where Mm -hmm. you you know did things hands-on versus digital facility with um you know obviously more modern methods of Mm -hmm. tradecraft and it's it's really cool yeah who's your favorite character did you like really resonate with one character I had several that I really liked. So let me see. I mean, obviously the two leads, Gary Oldman and Jack Loden, they make the whole series. Like mm-hmm. they are the tentpole characters and they do a fantastic job. Mm-hmm. They both, like across the board, the casting for this series was excellent. And not just the casting, but also the the screenwriting to adapt it as a a, a series was really well done as well. Mm-hmm. I've listened to the audiobook of the novel uh, uh-huh. over the last week as well, and it was a very faithful adaptation. And I think even though they made like a small number of changes, I think they all were for the better in terms of making it a a more compelling story. So, does the book take place over the same time course, or is yes. it more okay? Yeah, there it's a a really faithful adaptation. So those two leads were uh, excellent, and I have more to say about uh, the River Cartwright character. Mm-hmm. But other standout characters were Catherine Standish. Um, I thought she was a really interesting character. She's one of the more old school people. Mm-hmm. And has a, like a very long history in MI5 that is a, at the forefront of everything that she does. Mm-hmm. Um, so her backstory is really rich, and I really liked how she surprises people in her capability. I think a lot of people counted her out, and so oh, I liked cool. seeing her, um, seeing her kind of flourish once mm-hmm. she's given the opportunity. Mm-hmm. I thought Louisa Guy was really good. I just really liked how no-nonsense she was. Uh, she, uh, I don't know, her reactions to things were just so good and mm-hmm. really pleasing. And I thought she, I, I really liked her character. And also Sid Baker. She was also a great character and was the most well-liked person in Slough House. And it was obvious um, why. Like, she was a really good, capable person. She was, like, the most capable person there. Uh-huh. And everyone agreed. And, <laughs> um... <laughs> but she that. was also... She just had really good rapport with other people as well. So, 
um, really liked Sid. And, oh yeah, another thing that I think is important is that it, the show does not take itself too seriously in the way that a lot of spy dramas do. Like, it's Mm. not trying to be, like, so cool. It's actually really funny in a lot of ways. There's humor. And most of it is, like, just people devastating other people with cutting (laughs) remarks and being really mean in, like, a really sarcastic British way. It's Uh actually quite funny very frequently. And so... Oh, I thought that that's was not what a, I was expecting. No, at all. it's it's not overly serious. Like there's obviously a lot of tension and stuff, but it's constantly undercut with humor. It's great because you're 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 following just a bunch of fuck ups basically, and so they're constantly just dunking on each other, being like, "You, why the fuck did you do that? That was such a stupid thing to do," and yeah. it's. It's really funny, especially because Gary Oldman is just so mean. He's constantly just getting on everyone's case and making fun of them, and it's great. Do you think that that is a, an intentional choice, but specifically intentional in drawing a contrast between previous spy media that does take itself very seriously and is... Um, like trying to feel very cool and very um sexy right Mm -hmm. whereas like this is showing you a different side to spy media where it is um more goofy and you're seeing like the the um bottom of the pack so like the opposite of james bond you know yeah i think that is I think the fact that we're following the underdogs and the bottom of the barrel spies, mm-hmm. the cast off spies, yeah. uh, that's the main conceit of the book. But mm-hmm. I think they even lean into it even harder in the series. Um, I do think that's intentional because mm-hmm. it's just more interesting to see it from the underdog's perspective. Yeah. Like people who have no resources and no one believes in them and are actively working against them, it's much more compelling to watch them try to problem solve when Mm -hmm. all of the cards are stacked against them and when they are all feeling insecure about their abilities because they know they're the bottom of the barrel. It also highlights something that a lot of spy media doesn't, the benefits to working as a team because Mm -hmm. diversity and experience obviously play into how well people problem solve as a Mm -hmm. team whereas james bond is running around solving everything by himself he never has to ask for help he never Mm -hmm. has a partner unless it is the like love interest for that movie Mm -hmm. um helping him so i think that that's really interesting it's not just some guy running around with his cool gadgets it's like people actually working as a team as spies as opposed mm-hmm. to just like being the cool guy. Exactly. Because the starting point, they they have this arc as a group together. They mm-hmm. start out just like hating each other and all working alone. And over time, they realize that 
you know, maybe these other people aren't that bad. Maybe they do have interesting skills and they are all like complementary and they all end up yeah. contributing something in the end, which is uh, really satisfying to watch. But it's, you gr bring up an excellent point about James Bond specifically. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why the main character, the River Cartwright character is so good and he's my favorite character out of all of them mm -hmm. because he is almost the anti-James Bond in every way because he's constantly making bad decisions <laughs> and just showing his inexperience and doing things big and small that show mm -hmm. that he doesn't have it together yet. And it's interesting because he's always well-meaning. He's always trying and striving to make a difference Aren't and do all? good things. But he just makes mistakes sometimes. <laughs> and <laughs> he's so frustrated by being there that he'll do anything to, to try to get out and try to earn his spot back in the mm -hmm. main MI5 office. And so that's what you're watching him do for this whole season. But it's his desire to do that mixed with his inexperience and his failures in doing that are endearing. Mm -hmm. And they make him a really a fun character to watch. And it's perfect because... This character, the River Cartwright character, I think wouldn't work if it were acted by anyone other than someone like Jack Loden. Mm -hmm. Because the actor Jack Loden, he could be James Bond. Like, I should have sent you mm -hmm. the trailer so you could see him. He's like, he's definitely like top tier snack material. <laughs> he's very capable. I think his favorite mode of transportation is just a flat sprint. Like, he does lots of running. Lots of athletic running, feats of athleticism. He could easily be James Bond. And it's like, he he looks the part of James Bond and has a lot of the skills and know-how of a James Bond. And he even has, like, a spy pedigree. Like, his grandfather was an mi5 so in he has all of these attributes that could make him a james bond mm -hmm. but because he just did or did not make one mistake he ends up in this place where everyone is just dunking on him all the time and won't <laughs> let him live it down oh, and man. if it were anyone else it might seem sad but because it's it's people dunking on Jack Loden. It's not sad. You just feel bad that he has to, he has to um, withstand all of this abuse and still keep trying and still keep striving. I don't know. I just think he was cast perfectly. Mm -hmm. I love that character. Um, I hope he's the main character in the second season. I know the series of books is more defined as like the Jackson Lamb series. So I oh. hope River Cartwright is still in it. But um I just yeah, 
Jackson Lamb is Gary Oldman's character. Correct. Yes. Got it. <laughs> no, it's okay. But yeah, I just thought Jack did such a good job because he's like sensitive and vulnerable mm-hmm. and he forms personal ties to people and mm-hmm. shows actual emotion and frustration and he has so much more depth than I've ever seen in someone that could be like just a a surface level like one-dimensional James Bond type of character I think they very intentionally cast someone like Jack Loudon to show like this you can have like a really awesome character and he can look like this and run like this and and feel all these things (laughs) yeah yeah, I think that contrast is really interesting. Yeah, so I just thought it was a really good... It's like an example I wanted to highlight of a genre I don't normally like, but when it's done right, it's really good, and it's really yeah. fun. And if if you don't think you're going to watch it, I will send you a compilation of all the funniest parts, and then you can you can just vicariously watch it through that. Yeah, that sounds good. My partner loves a James Bond, and I don't get it. (laughs) Me neither. Doesn't your partner also really like James Bond movies? Yeah, he doesn't miss them. Hmm. Yeah, and interestingly, he didn't finish this series. Oh, really? Which is weird, yeah. Maybe he doesn't like, maybe he wants spies to be super cool. Maybe. (laughs) Uh, You you kind of touched on this, right? That Mm -hmm. this character is... A really complex character and um, has like vulnerability, but I do like that contrast as well. That like spies and men should and can have emotions, yeah, and show them, yeah, yeah. There's definitely emotional stakes and just also stakes in general, which is a mm-hmm. thing that uh, makes a big difference to me. Like a lot of the genres that I don't watch, like traditional spy stuff Mm -hmm. or like superhero stuff I often don't like them not just because the characters are uh oftentimes one-dimensional but because there's never real stakes in that type of thing like you know James Bond is gonna be fine and Spider-Man's gonna live Spider-Man's gonna live (laughs) and all of those things and very quickly in this series, you see that you don't know who is safe. Not everyone is safe. I don't and, like that. Which is, a sh- <laughs> that's the shit that I live for, is uh, when there's there's actual stakes and yeah. things have consequences. So that is another thing that I wanted to note that um, yeah. I really liked that. No one's untouchable, basically. Hmm. It sounds good. Yeah, I will say um, you do have to learn people's names. There's mm-hmm. lots of information, lots of dialogue about people that are not present. So <laughs> the faster you learn everyone's names, the better. I think that's why my partner ended up not finishing because he is not good at learning character names and keeping mm-hmm. track of people that he hated game of thrones i had to really help him (laughs) get through game of thrones i recommend binging slow horses i started watching it as soon as it began and it came out weekly and i was like wow i'm overwhelmed 
like from week to week, I was like, who the fuck is that guy again? Like, mm-hmm. what is that? What is the significance of this name? And so I waited a f- until the series finished releasing and then I went back and started over and finished it and like after just starting like maybe the first three episodes I went back and watched it all the way through and doing that made it much more easy to follow god the finale was the season finale was so good it really elevated the entire um season as a whole I think so that also really put it over the top and made me excited to talk about it all right, so I chose to talk about The Exorcist um, and some related content this week. The reason I chose to talk about this was because I watched a Shudder original documentary. Um, so Shudder is a streaming service dedicated to horror films and shows and documentaries. Um and I watched a uh, a documentary with my partner. He likes documentaries so much, and I wanted to find some common ground so that we could watch a documentary together and both How really enjoy it. How dare you find common ground with someone else? <laughs> <laughs> um, and I suggested we watch... Uh, this documentary it's called um, Leap of Faith mm-hmm. and it's really interesting it's it's not a documentary in the traditional sense it's more of a conversation with the director about the making of the movie and less so like behind the scenes footage and stuff like that it's a lot of like watching scenes of the film it's clear that they brought up a scene of the film and wanted um William Friedkin to talk about it. So sort of like a interview slash commentary? Yeah. It's basically like a director's commentary. Um, bonus type thing. It's very, mm-hmm. very good though. <laughs> I actually highly recommend it. I thought it was really interesting and um, I didn't know any of like the history um, or like any of the behind the scenes facts about the film. So that was really cool. And I got really excited about the documentary, and I thought that that was what I was going to talk about this week specifically. But I decided to rewatch the film this mm-hmm. week, and I watched it at work while doing <laughs> menial tasks because I get too dang scared to watch a horror film at home on my own. So I'll mainly be talking about The Exorcist with some facts from the documentary sprinkled here and there. And I might also touch on an episode of a podcast that discusses. Uh, <laughs> I know which movie. one. <laughs> um, so I wanted to give a really quick plot description. It's a very straightforward film. Um, so I'm not going to get too deep into the plot until I like go into the things that I really enjoyed about the movie. Because I don't want to just rehash the whole plot. Can you remind me the year it was made again? Oh, yes. It was made in 1973, and then I believe in 2000, they re-released it, and I think it had, like, additional footage. Like, I think it had a different ending. Um, It was more of, like, a director's cut version. I watched the original, not the director's cut. 
Um, and then Leap of Faith was released in 2019 on Shudder. Um, so generally the plot follows this mother and daughter. The mother is named Chris. I forget her last name. Chris has a pretty prolific acting career. She's like a famous actress. People are asking for her autograph um, throughout the movie. So she is a working mother. She's a single mother. Um, Her husband has uh, clearly like left her, estranged her in some way. Um, It's kind of unclear what the situation is surrounding that. And throughout the movie, um, Reagan plays with a Ouija board and opens herself up to a spirit um, <laughs> or demon. The spirit's name is Captain Howdy. <laughs> um, through this interaction with the Ouija board, Reagan is opened up to possession by this spirit. And the possession is a pretty slow burn, which I really like. Um, in this movie, and I'll get into that a little more later. Um, but uh, the mom, Chris, turns to a priest that is struggling with his faith. And the priest that she turns to, his name is Damien Karras. He investigates the case, basically, and collects evidence of whether or not this is a possession. Damien Karras is able to save Reagan at his, at the expense of himself, right? So he, you've seen this movie, correct? It's been a long, long time. Okay. I just wanted to make sure that I wasn't like blowing past too much. Um, but Damien Karras sacrifices himself. Um, he lets the demon come into him and then he jumps through a window right. um, and falls down the infamous Georgetown steps um, in D.C., that long staircase um i really want to go see the stairs someday when i go to dc Mm -hmm. and so yeah that's the general plot it's a very straightforward plot um and the nuance in the movie basically comes from characters interactions with each other so i first watched this movie in I think 2018, when I had first started uh, dating my husband. Um, And uh, while we were watching it, I didn't think it was that scary. Um, I thought that it was really good while we were watching it. Um, But then afterwards, he thought it would be funny to like do a demon voice. And (laughs) I was like, never do that again. That freaked me out real bad. I didn't like that at all, and now I'm super scared of this movie, and I'm never going to watch it again. Wow, so um, you got retroac- retroactively scared of it which after? Which happens to me a lot, actually. I, like, think a lot about movies after watching them. That happened to me with Midsommar, mm-hmm. where I watched the movie initially and didn't like it and didn't um, really? think I would ever watch it again. Yeah. I was just um, kind of angry at the way it played out. Really? Yeah. But then I couldn't stop thinking about it. And then I was like, we got to watch that again. Like the next week, I think I made us watch it one more time. And I really liked it the second time I watched it. 
Um, and so I decided that I was going to not follow the Manzukas rules of watching it after dark by myself. Um, <laughs> the Manzukas rules. Yes. Sorry. I forgot that's about that. That's a reference to the uh, Scaredy Cat Horror Show, which is a podcast. Um, uh, and it, it, it has the hosts of another podcast, um, Reply All, and they, one of the hosts, PJ, um, who is no longer a host on Reply All, but was for a very, very long time, he was very scared of watching horror films, and he's a very anxious, an anxious man, um, and his co-host was like, I'm gonna teach you how to like horror movies. Yeah. And... They were, they had this plan of like slowly walking him up the ladder of horror and (laughs) showing him all kinds of horror. And they fucking lead off with The Exorcist, which I at the time thought was the scariest fucking thing I'd ever watched. Mm -hmm. Anyways, Jason Manzukas, who is a host of How Did This Get Made, which we've talked about in the past, Mm -hmm. um, was on the episode for the first. Uh, film which was The Exorcist and he yelled at PJ because PJ watched it in the middle of the day and opened <laughs> oh his God. blinds halfway through and then called and a like friend on starting and stopping yeah and starting and, and stopping phone. oh my god um, and yeah I can't follow the Manzukas rules those rules are they're good rules me. okay they are good rules but I can't I get like, so anxious <laughs> Um, but I love a horror film. Anyways, um, so I watched it at work to avoid the spooky scaries, um, at night. <laughs> in that my is own insane. Home. That's insane behavior. <laughs> um, yeah. So there are many things that I really like about this movie, and I think I gave a lot more thought to the second time of watching it. Um, the first and probably most prominent thing that I want to touch on is how much I love Chris, the mother. Um, she is a single mom and I love a horror movie that's focused on a single mom. Examples are Babadook and The Conjuring 2. There's a vulnerability and also a strength in movies focused around single mothers. Um, I was raised by a single mom. Um, My parents got divorced when I was very, very young. And I think that's why this movie and other movies that focus around single moms really stand out to me um, because I can really kind of get into that space and um, like think very hard about what that mother would be going through. I can really empathize with that situation. And in this movie, particularly, the mother's acting is fantastic. She's played by um, Ellen Burstyn. Uh, right. And the acting is just fantastic. There is this moment that the scene is very, very famous for um, making audiences pass out in the theater. Um, Reagan is starting to experience the beginning effects of possession. 
Um, and so she's going to all of these doctors. Her mom's taking her to all of these doctors to get a diagnosis. And the doctors are saying, we think it's a neurological issue. She's got abnormal temporal lobe activity, <laughs> which means she's having seizures. And that's why her bed keeps lifting up off the ground. I don't know. Anyways, they do an arteriogram. Or, yeah, an arteriogram, which is a method of imaging the blood vessels that go to the brain, basically. Um, and you can, I mean, it's most frequently used in cases of like stroke right. or um, I don't know why they would have done this test. I have major issues with even why they would have performed this test. I think it is just because uh, it was a good opportunity to throw in some gore. Mm. But there is this scene where they are targeting, I think it's her carotid artery. Basically, they have to put in this contrast. And so they're um, inserting kind of like a catheter almost to inject that. And um, Reagan, for some reason, is not anesthetized. Um, she's like showing a lot of pain on her face, which doesn't seem ethical. Um, and you see the mother who is out of the room, the camera keeps shifting to her and you see her watching this whole process of them, uh, causing her daughter pain, basically. And, um, the pure anguish on Chris's face is so gut-wrenching. It, it literally makes me have a sensation in like the top of my stomach um, because you can see her fighting her instincts, her motherly instincts of like wanting to just like run into that room and protect her daughter from this pain that's happening to her. But also these doctors are telling her that this is a necessary procedure to help diagnose her daughter. And it is so painful to like watch and they really drag it out. And then there's a whole lot of blood in that scene. Um, like the blood like squirts out in like a pumping motion. And that's actually why they think a lot of people fainted because it was so realistic huh. how blood would pump out of that artery. Anyways, it's pretty gross. It is pretty shocking. And I also think that her frustration at no diagnosis, more tests. Like the doctors keep telling her, we're going to have to do this again because we didn't see anything the first time, but maybe mm -hmm. on the second time we'll see it. And she's just screaming at one point. She's like, you haven't done anything. We're no closer to a solution. And then this group of doctors is like, maybe you should try an exorcism, um, which seems wild. Mm -hmm. So anyways, I just really love her acting it's so realistic for me. It just seems like what a mother would be feeling in a very, very realistic way. Um, especially because you have no support as a single mother. Like you don't have that counterpart to support you through that hard time of like trying to protect your child. And there's just like this increased vulnerability. And you also don't have, like, confirmation that you're making the right decisions either. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, and another thing that I really like about it, that PJ, the uh, host from Dirty Cat's Horror Show, 
brings up as one of the reasons he likes the film, and I completely agree, is that the movie feels like it plays fair. It's not like your modern horror film or like your modern um, mainstream horror film where there's a lot of jump scares and there's like the shock value of like, oh, you didn't expect to see the spooky guy out the window? Well, we just broke all the rules of what you thought you knew. Mm -hmm. And now you're really scared because you don't even know what you know. Basically, all of the scary things are going to happen in Reagan's bedroom with Reagan present while she's not sedated. Like, you have these very clear moments when you're supposed to be scared. Right. And I really appreciate that in a film. And I think they, they do it well. It's not boring. It, it has so much watchability, even though it's a movie from the 70s. Whereas I feel like a lot of old older horror movies will take me out of it with, like, unrealistic special effects. Um, but I think it has a lot of watchability uh, in today's day and age. Um, another aspect of the plot that I really like is um, the interactions between the demon and the priest, Damien Karras. It's really interesting. And I didn't uh, fully understand the demon's motivations until I, like, one, watched the documentary and two, watched the movie again and was, like, really thinking about what the demon, what the demon's game is. Um, but... Karis is obviously struggling with his faith. He has mentioned wanting to leave the church, wanting to leave his duties as a priest. And like, this is just a common theme in Karis's plot. And the demon is kind of playing with that, right? So he goes and evaluates Reagan. He's sitting by her bedside and the demon... Um, he's trying to evaluate whether or not Reagan is actually possessed or if it's a psychiatric issue and she just thinks she's possessed. So she's acting this way. Mm -hmm. And the demon, he'll, he'll kind of like try to do something tricky, right? So there's this scene that really stood out to me where he splashes holy water on Reagan and the demon has this very um, intense response to it. Very painful, just like, wailing in the bed and he goes downstairs and he says I put holy water on her but it wasn't holy water it was tap water and like she had this reaction so it's clearly not actually a demonic presence because tap water shouldn't have done that mm -hmm. and my theory is that the demon knew what was going on the whole time and was just like playing with his like lack of faith and trying to make him think um, trying to confuse him more and kind of muddy the waters even more. Um, and then there's basically this uh, interaction where the demon says, it's a beautiful day for an exorcism. And Karis asks why. Um, like, don't you, doesn't that mean you'd have to leave Reagan? And the demon says something along the lines of, on the contrary, it'll bring us together. And he goes, you and Reagan? And the demon responds, you and us. That makes you think that Karis is the real target of the demon. 
And I think in a way that that's true. But this demon seems mildly omnipotent. And um, (laughs) you've spent so much time since the beginning of the movie that you kind of forget about the initial priest character that you see in Iraq. And um, I think that he is the real target. And I will walk you through why. So there, it is alluded to that he has participated in an exorcism once before. And it was a successful exorcism and it almost killed him. This is the really old dude in the desert. Yes. Okay. Yes. And he gets called in eventually to perform the exorcism because he's basically the only person that's ever done this in recent memory. Um, so, and then Damien is going to assist. And I think that this demon is related to the demon that he exercised many, many years ago. And it is seeking to destroy him. So it's playing with Karis, making him question whether or not an exorcism is needed or not, having reasonable doubt that it's not, but still suggesting it so that this older priest comes in and then he can kill two birds with one stone. Uh. This helps me understand certain aspects of the actual exorcism scene. Because if you think of the old priest and Karis, both as targets for the demon, it helps me understand why the demon keeps presenting himself as Karis's mother, or themselves as Karis's mother, who has recently died, and Karis is feeling a lot of guilt about it. And it is to play on Karis's weakness making the priest not trust him, the older priest, not trust him to be in the room with the demon. So eventually he sends Karis away, leaving him vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And then the demon mysteriously kills him. We don't see what happens. We don't know how the demon kills him. But the demon kills the older priest. Karis comes back in the room, knows that he's not strong enough to defeat this demon on his own. And so he tackles Reagan to the floor and says take me instead like take me and in the scuffle the demon rips off his St. Joseph's medal which I'm not exactly sure what significance that has but it's some kind of protection that's preventing the demon from entering his body Mm -hmm. the demon rips that off and enters him and then Karis jumps out the window um One thing that I found most interesting about the documentary that I watched was that the director disagreed that Karis should have been in control when he jumped out the window um, or that it would be possible for Karis to be in control when he jumped out the window. And I fundamentally disagree with what the director is saying, because when we initially see Reagan being possessed, she is lucid one moment and then the demon the next and then lucid one moment and the demon the next and she doesn't understand what's going on so it makes sense that Karis would be able to fight the demon's control at the very beginning and run out the window to me um but I did think that the fact that the director and the initial author of the book because it's Sorry, it's based on a novel and the author basically said, no, 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 you've got to do it this way. This is the way I want it done. 
And the director was saying, I don't think that Karis should be in control if the demon has just entered his body. Um, but anyways, uh, I think it's a good scene. Um, but you do see like Karis's true facial features come back before he jumps out of the window, showing that he's in control of that action and that he is distinctly committing a sin um, by committing suicide and jumping out of the window, which I think makes it so much more interesting when you think about his struggle with his own faith. And if the demon had just murdered him, you don't get that like true almost loss of faith with Karis, just as he should have kind of regained his faith. Yeah, I I hadn't considered it from that viewpoint as, like, being a a quote-unquote sin. Yeah, and I think that that's why the last scene with his priest friend is really interesting because um, there's this priest friend uh, who comforts him throughout the movie, throughout his mother's death, and so on and so forth, and um, tries to tell him to stay in the church. And that man is actually a priest in real life. Um, He's not a trained actor. And uh, he gives the last rites over Karis's body just before he dies. um, And asks if he wants to make his last confession so that hopefully he can enter heaven after committing this sin of jumping out that window. Yeah, one of the strange things that the director brought up was that he couldn't get him to deliver that line emotionally. And so he slapped him right before that scene to get him to like deliver that in an emotional way. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people have talked about William Friedkin's like old school Hollywood tactics, um, which I don't. I don't know. I don't really agree with a lot of the things that he did. I don't really have an issue with, like, firing a gun to make a loud noise, to Mm. get a true fear response out of people, like, to make it believable. I don't really have an issue with that. I don't even have much of an issue with, like, a slap. Um, (laughs) A single single slap. He was just going around slapping everybody. I'd have more of an issue. But one thing that he talks about in the documentary that I majorly had an issue with is that um, when they were casting the voice for the demon, I don't know if you've heard this, but um, the demon voice was done by Mercedes McCainbridge, um, who has this like very um, kind of gravelly, they asked her to do this film. She was an alcoholic who had recently become sober and she was like, I can do this voice, but I will have to drink alcohol and gargle raw eggs and smoke cigarettes Mm -hmm. to create this specific sound that you want. And they were like, cool, you're hired. And she was like, but I'm an alcoholic. Um, And they were like, cool, you're hired. And... Uh, I, I disagree with that. I don't think that that's something that we would consider like ethical by today's standards to ask an alcoholic to give up their sobriety. But yeah, I really like the film. I thought that it has a lot of really interesting aspects to it that, um, I didn't really catch my first time around. So yeah, that's all I've got for that. 
Um, and I think I'm going to have a hard time with the overlap for this one. I feel like I was trying to think of things when we were chatting. Yeah. Well, while you were talking, I was thinking um, that I think one fundamental overlap is that we both chose examples of, like, genre fiction. Mine mm. being, like, spy fiction and yours being horror. Yeah. And both of those genres can fall prey to surface-level, one-dimensional characters. So, yeah. like, you pointed out how the mother um, in The Exorcist is a really shows great depth not only in like the acting yeah skills of the actor that portrays her but just in terms of her struggle to get like the care that her child needs and mm -hmm. being a single mom and trying to figure this out and she brings a lot to that role in yeah. terms of the complexity of this like insurmountable challenge essentially and yeah. I think at a fundamental level, we both chose things that are successful because they brought depth to characters that could have been very one-dimensional. Yes. Because there's plenty of, there's countless examples of people in horror film that are just, have no depth. They're just there to be, like, uh, either killed or, mm. you know frightened or yeah they serve like a very surface level uh function you know what i mean yeah i think you're absolutely right that both of these picks do a really good job of adding dimensionality mm -hmm. yeah yeah and then also i think not giving up in the face of immense challenge is another commonality um definitely in the case of the river cartwright character in slow horses mm -hmm. like he, the there's basically no odds that he'll ever reach his goal of being restored to mi5 yeah. fully but he never stops trying like everything mm -hmm. he does is with that goal in mind of trying to well i mean not that completely like he also wants to like help people and do it for the reason he you know wanted to be a spy in the first place but he doesn't give up on that uh secondary goal of yeah trying to be restored to that position so that he can do this this difficult but um hopefully important work and yeah. so I think perseverance is a, another general theme they have in common. Yeah. No demons and slow horses? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, only if you're counting just hauntings from, from past actions. <laughs> <laughs> demons of the past. Demons of the past. <laughs> um, yeah, that's great. I really like that you picked up on those commonalities. <sighs> Another one in the books, guys. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was a long one. This is the longest one to date. Uh, as for where to stream these uh, pieces of media as of May 2022, The Exorcist is streaming on Netflix. 
um, Leap of Faith, the documentary about The Exorcist, is streaming on Shudder. Um, Slow Horses is streaming on Apple. Apple TV Plus. And Our Flag Means Death is streaming <laughs> on HBO Max. HBO Max. Thanks for joining us this week on Friend Diagram. Thank you to Tyler Seek for the creation of our intro and outro music. Did you take any of our recommendations? Have any thoughts on the show? Let us know at frienddiagrampod at gmail.com and we might read your email on a future episode. If you can, please take a moment to rate and review the show on your podcast app of choice. And we'll see you back here, same place, next week. Bye for now.